2: Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to uh, the New Books Network. This is the Chinese Studies channel, um, and I'm one of your hosts, Claire Iwasaki. And I'm here today to talk about a really exciting new collection that just came out a few months ago, and it's called Reorienting Hong Kong's Resistance, Leftism, Decoloniality, and Internationalism. Um, and this is out from Springer, and so this is a, a volume that was has four editors: Wen Liu, J. N. Qian, Christina Cheng, and Ellie Z. And I'm joined today by two of the editors, J. N. and Ellie. So, J. N. and Ellie, uh, welcome to the channel. Thanks so much um, for having us. So, just like really, really briefly. I'd like to introduce the two editors who are here. So J.N. Chan is a PhD candidate in American Studies and Ethnicity at the University of Southern California, researching U.S. and Hong Kong integration in the Cold War Trans-Pacific through economic history, labor, migration, and detention in the shadow of multiple imperialisms. His writing has been published in Hong Kong Studies, The Nation, Jacobin, and Laosan. And Ellie Tse is a PhD student in cultural and comparative studies at the Department of uh, Asian Languages and, and Cultures at the University of California, Los Angeles. Her research addresses the aftermath of inter-imperial encounters via visual, spatial, and architectural practices across the Sinophone Pacific with a focus on Hong Kong. And so I guess to kind of get us started, I'll ask a somewhat traditional question for the channel. And I guess for the sake of, of simplicity, Ellie, um, I, I'd ask you to go first, and then JN, um, I'd ask you to go after. But you know, for both of you, you know, how did you become interested in this project? How did you become involved in this edited volume? Volume, and what was the kind of inspiration for it?
0: Um, for me, I think the story and the sort of driving impetus uh, goes back to the rupturing moment in 2019 in terms of the political movement in Hong Kong. And I think that um, that was a moment where a lot of new friends and a lot of new comrades came into orbit for me. And I do remember um, uh, at the time, I think late 2019, people were struggling to find resources to articulate the experience on the ground and me and some other people were trying to get together a decolonial reading list of Hong Kong and afterwards I think we were circulating it um, just like with uh, people uh, both in Hong Kong and, and diaspora and then uh, that was also alongside some um, ongoing translation work that we were doing that um, enabled people to understand what was happening in Hong Kong um, uh, if even if they were not in Hong Kong. So. For me, I think that this has been three years coming. Um, I think this volume is very much not a culmination of all the energies and all the sort of initiatives and collaborations that started in 2019, but instead sort of a checking of the pulse and sort of a uh, just marking of the milestone that um we we've done like a lot of stuff so um and for me it's i think it's maybe like also personal like i i feel personal kind of strong need to um invest deeply in the kind of networks and traditions that are already in existence in terms of the decolonial left practice in hong kong and i think that that is just something that might have been Kind of overlooked or neglected in mass cultural politics and the mass movement and i think that for me like it's personal because uh i'm somewhere between local uh, born and born and raised in hong kong and also somewhere um diasporic but not asian american and so uh for me it's also uh, very much a project of um kind of self-description self-articulation i don't want it to be like so selfish but <laughs> sometimes you know um it takes personal investment And that's my kind of stakes too. And it's to sort of um, determine where to go at this like crossroads of kind of discourse and representation and, and for me to connect that project with other people.
2: Yeah, I think that's a really nice point. And I mean, you know, I, I, I do feel like often in academia, we're sort of encouraged to feel like ourselves can't be a part of our scholarship. Right. But, you know, that said, you know, I think that's a sort of flawed statement, right? There's there's always some some kind of skin in the game, right? And so, you know, I think there's nothing wrong and there's a lot, you know, I think there's a lot to be said about making it very explicit, like what, you know, what this means to you, right, as a as a subject, right? Um, Jayan, what about you?
1: Yeah, I mean, I agree with Ellie, and I guess I'll just add that, you know, it, it was kind of a weird archival project in a way because we were looking through a lot of the on archive and trying to figure out um, what pieces we want to include And so it was kind of like archiving by publishing in a, in a print book. Um, And, you know, we were, uh, we, you know, I'm thankful to uh, Jacob Dreyer at Palgrave, who, who actually solicited uh, the project from us. He he kind of said, do you have any interest in doing an edited collection? And this was back in December, 2019. So it's been kind of on our plate and on our brains for (laughs) a very long time. And, you know, so there was actually a lot of grappling with how to conceive of this project, just based on. We were doing it as the movement was ongoing. And, you know, so one of the most kind of concrete examples of that, I think, was like, you know, we worked on it from tw- end of 2019 up until like end of 2021. And uh, for three of the endorsers that we asked, um, we had to ask the publishers to change their uh, faculty affiliations three different times because each of them were they were having, they were either like expelled from their schools for their political work or they were being repressed or, or something like that. So, you know, that that kind of the ongoingness of the events that we were trying to record was like made so evident at that moment. So, um, yeah. And then so the, the other element of the collection was like trying to pull together what were some of the important pieces that we had published in, in 2019, 2020. Um, and then having the opportunity to ask a lot of the authors uh, that originally published with us to revise and update them based on what had happened in that time was really gratifying and uh, seeing how, you know, their thinking did change or sometimes didn't change uh, based on the direction that the, the movement went was was really great.
2: It's a really, like, you know, interesting point. I mean, I, I will, I think, ask, uh, you know, about a number of these issues. But, you know, one thing that kind of came out, this is, you know, deviating a little bit, but um, was from both of your responses, this idea of both, you know, it is not a culmination, right, T- temporally not a culmination, and yet, if it not a culmination, yet it is a sort of art, you know, an, a, an attempt to kind of do some sort of archival retrieval, right, like that's just, you know, I think speaks to the sort of turbulent nature of this, right, and, and then, you know, to a certain extent, um, you know, the way that time has worked, you know, uh, since 2019, and particularly right like during the the kind of COVID pandemic, that you know you've had some time, while things are changing extremely rapidly, to also you know kind of look at things that were happening maybe prior to that. That I think is a really like interesting point um, that I kind of saw in both of those responses. Um, you know, so I guess um, you both of you kind of talked a little bit about the the length of the editing process, right? Um, And, you know, I think I've actually, I've never done it, but uh, from what I've heard from people and perhaps you guys can talk about this, um, editing a a collection is pretty, you know, it's it's a long time-consuming process. Um, And, you know, uh, typically, you know, the humanities for better or for worse um, tends to kind of focus much more on the kind of singular kind of book project, right? The, the monograph is kind of the gold standard of, of what we're supposed to be doing. And you know, what you have done is like, so impressive. I really, you know, enjoyed this collection, you know, immensely and got like so much out of it. Um, but this was a, a kind of collective effort, right? Not only between the four of you, but also between, you know, I think Chris, uh, sorry, Jay, and you've already talked about this, right? Um, you know, this, the fact that you're kind of also working with Past collaborators and then current collaborators, right? So, you know, what was the the process of of working with other people um, to create this this book, right? Um, and I guess uh, Jan, if you wouldn't mind uh, starting us off there.
1: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, the, yeah, the uh, I'm glad you noticed this because the temporality of this project is very so so very different from academic work, uh, especially because I guess uh, Laosang kind of started off as like a very kind of we're trying to track every single movement on the ground. It was a very kind of like news-oriented uh, thing, plus you know critical pieces. Uh, w- whereas we've eventually kind of uh, shifted in different directions, and so there there was that kind of like immediate gratification of publishing things right away, which is like the complete opposite of academia, as you know. Um, and so this was kind of a, a weird medium between those two temporalities, I think, and. You know, it was also a very interesting mix of, of collective work, as you pointed out, because, you know, not only because we've been working with a lot of the past collaborators and contributors that we've had, you know, we've been blessed to work with as well as translators, which uh, I can talk a lot more about, but... Um, Also because, you know, so many of these ideas and frameworks and arguments have been generated collectively amongst like a large group of people uh, through a lot of kind of rigorous and sometimes heated debates. So, you know, this this project really kind of emerged out of that work that we've done with other people um, and absolutely would not exist uh, without their labor. So, you know, that kind of informed how we did, how a lot of these pieces uh, that we published on Lausanne came into existence as well in terms of like the collaborative step was the first one. Like we would have to have the conversation with everyone. Do we agree with all these different points that this author has has submitted to us and those different things? Whereas I know it can be slightly different in, in academia where it's like, you know, you generate your own ideas in solitude and then you bring it to like a workshop and seminar and, and revise and rework that way. Uh, not to draw too fine a line between the two, because I know that there's overlap, but um, it was a very kind of interesting flip where the collaboration and struggling out of ideas came first. And then sometimes it came out under like a single author on the website. So um, yeah, that this this kind of edited collection is a whole mix of jumble of those dynamics as
2: well. It's really, I mean, it's an interesting point. I think that's like a very like useful kind of insight to have into the way that the, you know, both the kind of, um, you know, original um, kind of articles and things like that came together, but then also how this this came together. Um, yeah, I mean, it is, you know, it also sort of testifies, right, to it's not necessarily like a problem with authorship, but, you know, as you say, right, Jan, it's there's there's certain things, there's there certain labor or there's certain contributions that can get lost when we have to have a name, <laughs> or may, maybe two right there's a, and you know in that way a kind of collective you know um imagining even though you know it can seem like you know it can be very rigorous it can be very generative right there there are ways in which that kind of stuff gets lost so it's really helpful and I think it's really useful to kind of know that um so yeah that's a, a really interesting point um Ellie would you do you have anything you'd like to add to that I'm um,
0: sure I I'm very much not um close to the desert uh, end goal uh, at the moment I think probably like uh, five years out or something I have no idea honestly uh, but I, I I'm going to these like uh, dissertation workshops nevertheless because uh, it's it's nice to just tune in sometimes and see what people are doing and um, I want to bring up something that Xin um, Yao who's the author of Disaffected uh, out at Duke UP had said and then um, this has struck me um, in a way that uh, resonates with what I believe, is like a collective citation and um, authorship practice. And and it's that I think the edited volume or like the collective work is um, also the site of just survival. And I think you you were saying, Clara, you know, like the past three years, there's been so many overlapping crises, and it's impossible to write out the crisis from um, the argument or the sort of concept or whatever. And I think that that's very much true for um, my own sort of contribution to in the volume and the process of editing. Certainly, like uh I I think like I'm part of like the formation of ideas collectively, but without people who who are doing it together with me, like there is no way um any single one of us could have pushed out something like this um at this moment in, in an attempt to archive and an attempt to sort of uh uh prospect or telegraph out a uh, decolonial future or whatever, right? And so I think that. For me, that, that, that's sort of the central thesis of um, why, for me, this project is sort of um, a test for the idea of singular authorship. Uh, I think that my sort of personal experience in the Academy um, hasn't been super alienating. I think I'm very lucky in that I have great support um, from my department. I have great um, sort of intellectual community, and I haven't found it to be very sort of isolating or very alone. Um, but... I think that you know like monographs and like from my standpoint like having done this volume like these monographs and like these sort of single author projects like sometimes I think it's just you know like a, it's a bunch of people I think like the author is probably the interlocutor and it's like the network and it's like this the bunch of people it's like this close-knit but like wide sprung like collaboration mm-hmm. that actually is um, the central core of any project and so um, you know like I I want to like, moving forward, like, if if I ever get to the stage of doing my own dissertation, I would hope to um, uh, still carry th- this ethos um, of this volume with me, that, you know, this is, like, um, you know, a conscious cultivating of radical and trustful relations, and then it's a long-term kind of solidarity building that, um, uh, you know, a single monograph doesn't uh, always, like, speak to, so yeah I don't know maybe maybe it's a problem generally like that takes like beyond all of our lifetimes to fix like it's the neoliberal propriety of the professional academic and so I you know that that's I think that's like something that e- each of us can can work for for a very long time but you know that's just me
2: yeah I think that's a really I think that's a really good point too um and I mean, you know, I, it, not that me saying so has any effect whatsoever, right? But I think there. One thing that I I do think that, um, you know, I I got out of this volume, and I've I've gotten out of other edited volumes, but you know, this one particularly, you know, just because I it's I, I read it so recently and I I enjoyed it so much is, um, you know, I think Ellie, as you say very well, there's there's a lot to be gained in kind of acknowledging the community that has helped you bring out an idea. Right. And, you know, ideally maybe that's what like an acknowledgements section of a monograph does. And yet, right. Like, as, as you say, right, there's this kind of like very seductive um, probably, you know, pretty neoliberal uh, story that academics like to tell ourselves, like I, <laughs> I, you know, brought this book into the world. It is mine, right? And and yet, right? Like none of us get there. You know, none of us get there without um, so many people. Both, you know, kind of you know formal citations, right? People that you cite, but also you know your friends or your community who help you kind of like come up with this idea or you know kind of test out this idea. Right? Those are things that, um, you know. But I, I think that this volume is sort of a testament to the fact that you can have these really like, um, you know, cohesive and really substantial engagements with issues. Right. And, and it not just be like one person show. Um, And I, I do think, you know, that this book does, uh, you know, there are lots of different topics covered. There are a lot of different approaches. People are talking about a lot of different things. And yet there are some really clear through lines in this book that I think, you know, um, mean that it adds up to something more than the sum of its parts, right? There, there's something here that really um, collectively kind of means something, at least to me, right? I, I really found that to be like quite quite powerful. Um, so I guess sort of on that topic, right? Speaking a little bit of the kind of group of people who, um, you know, uh, contributed to this volume, you know, how did you and the other two editors you know how did you make decisions on who to contact i think um jn has already kind of talked a little bit about the fact that many of these people are people that you already knew and and worked with before but you know how how did you make decisions on who to include or what topics were important to include um so i think i think uh ellie why don't you go ahead and take this one first
0: yeah yeah sure i I think that um, it's very much uh, kind of a mixed approach. And I think Jan probably talked a little bit about the um, the aspect of like pulling from different archival uh, collaborations in the past few years. And then also um, having that um, kind of seg into each of the editor's own kind of intellectual foundations. And And in fact, I find that to be one of the most um Rewarding parts of working in a collective of editors rather than in a single type of editorial um, structure, and so I, like for me, it was like I I I was. I was obviously I, I think I'm more within like Sinophone studies and then I'm sort of like my work is in bringing into bear like uh, third world feminisms and women of color feminisms into Sinophone studies and then I think that resonates with Christina, which is another editor's work, uh, her work is very much on decolonial feminism and Hong Kong art and um, And then that sort of also brings into view like JN's sort of uh, attention to visual studies uh, in logistics and Cold War kind of militarisms. And then, you know, like everything sort of like um, in the midst of diving into the archive of past work uh, to refine and to update uh, and to sort of uh, clarify directions within. Uh, I think it's also um, all of our um, kind of interdisciplinary Um, kind of underpinnings also uh, bringing to the table. And so I think that um, the open call, we we certainly had an open call in the beginning. We we got a really good response and there was so much to go through. And in the end, like to have the open call um, as an indicator of great interest and also uh, the heap of things that we were going through in the archive. I think that, um, like, I think the question was really to, yeah, make it clear rather than to choose. I think it's almost impossible to narrow down or to um, say, you know, like this analysis is more like trenchant or like more urgent than another, but rather I think, yeah, it's, it's a question of us sort of naming the stakes and also giving the appropriate framework on which to support all these, um, all these uh, different arguments
2: that's a really you know another really interesting response um but um yeah i i guess ellie if i could ask just a follow-up question to that i hope you you i hope you don't mind but um you know i guess i'm just sort of curious like how much how much of the volume came from the open call and how much of it came from the sort of archive, um and were you looking for you know specifically things that that went well together you know were, were there certain things that you were kind of looking to have covered that maybe weren't covered in the archive like that kind of thing I'm just sort of curious well
0: I, I think like we're okay we're both kind of like looking and at the pdf right now um but I, I think like for each section so each section is actually I think a good mix maybe like um sometimes like half and half sometimes maybe like two-thirds archive or something I think is that right yeah I think I think so so it's it's almost like going for open call is um it's just a huge um opportunity for us to like look for people we haven't collaborated with yet but have actually been in um kind of the political and intellectual orbit of our conversation and so um like certainly like the the um variety or i, I i'd say like the range of collaborations we've done in the past is um like it ranges from uh, labor to um, kind of solidarity to coalition building. Uh, and I mean, it, it, it covers a wide gamut, but inevitably there are gaps. And I will say that um, perhaps material life, which is the second section, I think that would be somewhere that we're pulling more heavily on the open call. And so I, so, you know, it's, it's again like a, a sort of not really choosing, but uh, fitting, like more like fitting it into um, a supportive and an um, explanatory framework that clarifies directions and also just like lifts up like all these different analyses that otherwise like perhaps that we we were not aware of or that other people were not aware of. But yeah, I don't know if Jayan has anything to add about that.
2: Yeah, we can. Jayan, did you have anything you wanted to add to that?
1: No, I think I think Ellie covered covered that pretty well.
2: Okay, sounds sounds good, That is really interesting, I, you know, um, I guess. Um, maybe we can you know, having kind of talked about the way that that the editor selected this, I guess let's get into some of the um, the substance of this collection and there's there's a lot here just to warn you, I could probably ask you questions for three hours. I'm not going to do that. Um, but I, I just want you to know that I I could if I, <laughs> felt like that would be the nice thing to do, which it would not be at all. Um, Okay. So I guess um, one of the ways that I I thought maybe we could talk about this is to kind of use the the introduction to the collection um, that was written by all four editors as a kind of through line into the collection. Um, Again, there are a lot of really good articles um, in this. And uh, for listeners who haven't had a chance to pick up this book yet, um, I highly recommend reading all of them. But um, you know, just as a way to kind of get through some of the the ways in which this collection is constructed, um, I thought that might be a sort of um, useful thing to do. Um, and so, you know, this is perhaps not the most intelligent point that I could make, but, um, you know, you mentioned in the title, um, you know, this kind of concept of de- the decolonial, right? Um, and this is something that this is a term that you really um, kind of give a lot of space to in the introduction, um, as well as, you know, talking about decolonial movements and then also talking about leftist movements and then how these two you know kinds of terms like interact with each other within Hong Kong. Um, and so I, I was really um, struck by that. Um, and I was also particularly struck and I think particularly intrigued um, that, you know, one of the other things that the editors kind of put forward in the introduction is an attempt to move beyond um, third world internationalist perspective, right, um, which has been, I think, often, um, and you guys can correct me if I'm wrong, I'm not an expert in this, obviously, but um, that has been a way that, um, you know, leftism, Asian leftism, right, uh, particularly has, has kind of been constructed, right, right. Um, and so, you know, you the the editors, you know, both of you and the other two editors, right, uh, kind of posit that this might not be a great fit um, for Hong Kong. So, you know, I guess I'd like to hear um, both of you talk a little bit more about the word decolonial. Um, you know, what are some of the tensions that? Um, that you kind of felt within that word, you know, why did you decide to kind of use this as one of the keywords, you know, both in the title and then in in the collection throughout? So, um, Jan, if you'd like to start us off, I'd really appreciate that.
1: Sure. sure, yeah, that's a great question. I mean, I think all four of the editors might have different thoughts on this too. So I'm like speaking for myself here, but one of the most compelling uh, facets of decolonial critique and decolonial as a term, I think, is that it's not overdetermined in my mind. In in a, the same way as like third world critique and third world internationalism are. Um, So I know lots of different people who practice decolonial critique uh, draw on each other's work and stuff, but they also theorize very specifically based on their own locations and context. So, you know, uh, in this collection, we are drawing on this existing literature um, that, you know, the, the core ethos being that we not only have to dismantle the settler capitalist political economy of a colony but also the colonial hierarchies of race, sex, gender, and other hierarchies of um, valuation that socially reproduce that system. So I'm thinking of like uh, Maria Lugones's Towards uh, Decolonial Feminism, where she expands on uh, Any Balquijano's coloniality of power uh, by insisting on the way in which gender is not peripheral or epiphenomenal, uh, but it really cuts across all the dynamics of like ecology, economics, and knowledge production. So You know, I think the term is very popular in some US academic circles uh, and it's not often used in Hong Kong at all, as far as I know. Um, But I think what we wanted to do was to use it to kind of identify the infrapolitical, which is uh, something that one of uh, our editors, Christina, brought in from uh, James C. Scott uh, and thinking prefiguratively about like the glimmer of politics that we see in the movement standing apart from you know, the the mainstream ideology and what is being presented as this kind of monolith of what Hong Kongers believe. Um, And also, um, you know, we wanted to use decolonial to kind of prefiguratively identify things that we see as targeting the foundations of Hong Kong's ongoing colonial dilemma. Um, And so I think by choosing a term like decolonial that isn't really used locally, we're also able to kind of avoid a lot of these pitfalls of these overdetermined terms like adopting, uh, attempting to adopt or pursue th- a third-worldism that suits Hong Kong or vice versa. And we can really kind of like start trying to think fresh and anew about the, the different problems that Hong Kong has. Um, not to say that we should just discard all the lessons of the past entirely, right? But not not being kind of chained to them, um, you know, forever. Yeah.
2: Yeah, I think that's, you know, I, I think is a really interesting, um, really interesting point and, you know, uh, we'll talk more about this later, but, you know, uh, not to say, right, that your collection, I think, as you say, Jan, right. Um, doesn't make connections with other places, right. Um, or doesn't, you know, kind of engage with some of these issues, but, you know, what you're trying to do is really new. I, I think, um, you know, again, not a huge expert on this topic, but, um, you know, but I, I I like the point that you're looking for something that's a good fit, right? Not trying to make Hong Kong fit into something, a pre-existing framework, which I think has been kind of common um, to do uh, from time to time. So yeah, I think that's a, a really nice point. Um, Ellie, did you have anything you, you'd like to add? Yeah, uh,
0: sure. So. Uh- Honestly, I, I very much agree with what Jen kind of outlined there. Uh, my kind of, I, I can give a little bit more context uh, with our discussion um, when when we were talking about, you know, what what is the like, what is the meaning of decolonial, especially in in use at such a fraught time and um, and for such a uh, sort of kind of alienated space from. The discourse of decolonial, and so I mean, I, I think that uh, I I would point listeners to the chapter um, for uh, by S Y Chan, mm-hmm. uh, which kind of, which kind of like very clearly uh, uh, articulates the uh, kind of the conversation that people have about decolonization versus decolonial, which is uh, sometimes kind of uh, I think overlooked or willfully misunderstood. Uh, to the point that people don't necessarily separate out decolon- decolonization from above or by a state versus sort of uh, the kind of decolonial practice from below. And I think that that's, um, that speaks to, you know, like like exactly what you're talking about, like the limitations of the kind of afterlives of um, non-alignment and like sort of the Bandung type of lineage that I think um, that still finds a lot of oxygen in um. Uh, what I would say present day, like still reactionary type of uh, solidarities with uh, the uh, nominally socialist state and et cetera, et cetera. And so, I mean, I think that that's something that we kind of try to clarify right off the bat that we, uh, neither are we talking about decolonization from um, anywhere but below. And we are also not, we're also not trying to, you know, um, grift off of, you know, the much litigated, like decolonization, like, you know, like that's not a metaphor, like they, they have, it has like a clear, like settler colonial critical dimension to it that we're definitely not trying to impinge on. And so I think that for me, like decolonial um, is the appropriate space on which we can, like Jan was saying, like we could make uh, new determinations uh, in lieu of sort of like these other tired and or like mixed up or confused, like uses of um, similar kind of uh, similar words. And so, I mean, when, when it comes to you know you were saying that uh hong kong as a term or as a site often gets uh kind of slotted back into pre-existing frameworks or kind of imported or ready-made uh, uh theoretical foundations uh and and then like it doesn't get its own right to articulate or describe it's um uh it's i guess uh yeah it's it's existence it's it's whatever and i i think you know this is something that we're very wary of and i think that there's a very typical debate in terms of um for example i mean cyanophone studies like we, we're always talking about like uh does taiwan have the right to theory or can we do theory from taiwan blah blah i mean it's it's for me like as someone like in this project like i'm very conscious of the charge to be able to Uh, do theory from Hong Kong and treat it as a site from which to do critique and not a site of critique or a site to critique per se. And so I think that that's, um, I think that's a huge responsibility. And it, it unfortunately it fits awkwardly in the sort of kind of radical or pseudo-radical epistemologies that kind of infiltrate the discourse of around Hong Kong today and I think that um, you know like even within Hong Kong itself on the ground I was in Hong Kong in 2019 and um, let me tell you like there were so many like rumblings of like just general like resentment to like just like skepticism and like um even anger about like people trying to foist a term that's unfamiliar onto Uh, sort of quote-unquote local context and I think that um, for me like I was in um, multiple separate like left spaces in Hong Kong that like that's sort of like more I guess like for example like there's like a very like orthodox like I don't know like Marxist like bro type group that I was in for a while but then very like hastily left because of obvious reasons and you know they, they were like I was telling them like you know like we're doing a decolonial Hong Kong reading list like would you be interested in perhaps joining a reading group and they would they would be like you know like what's um, what's decolonial like um, and and like and it's like it's a little bit um, it's disheartening on one hand but it's also I quite understand that it's um, it's sometimes like it's it's a learning curve uh, as well as something that you just have to deal with at, at where it's at and so um, it's like so my question is you know like during this volume do Hong Kong people or like people from Hong Kong or whatever people associate to Hong Kong in any way, like, do they have a right to claim a decolonial po- politics? And, you know, my, my answer, like, for this volume and for um, any work associated with this, is like, yes, of course, like, of course we can. Like, it's unfamiliar, yes, but like, I think there are inklings and there are um, sort of, um, uh, if not, uh, I guess, like, direct, like, expressions of decolonial politics that are already available. And, you know, my job or, you know, rather our job is just to put it all together. And to make it, you know, legible. So, yeah, I mean, it's it's sort of my long winded rant um, about how we came to this term in the first place. And I think that, um, you know, this is an ongoing conversation happening at all levels um, of the movement. And it's I, I'm sure people disagree with us, or people agree. And you know, I think this is going to be something of a long term type of debate.
2: And I think those, you know, are both really interesting responses. Um... You know, I think, Ellie, I I really appreciate, you know, I I really appreciate that point, Um, you know, and I don't have any questions about this, but, you know, I I think this kind of, you know, both of you kind of mentioned, right, this, um, you know, kind of sense that like Hong Kong has not, um, you know, really been able to, or has maybe felt welcome to, or, you know, maybe sometimes people didn't want to kind of engage in this, you know, kind of debate until recently. Um, or, you know, like it, it, it has often been right, China, Taiwan, and, and maybe Hong Kong, right? Like it, you know, there, it has often been this way. And, um, obviously, you know, JN's article gets at this, and there are a lot of other articles that get to get at this kind of issue. Right. But, you know, I, I do think I, you know, I, I did find it to be, you know, quite powerful, you know, I, I'm not a Hong Kong person and I, I don't know about, you know, a lot of this stuff very well, but, you know, there were a lot of articles that I, I do think, you know, kind of, Uh, articulated in much more intelligent ways things that I had thought, you know, and was like, yeah, I wish I was that smart. (laughs) Like, you know, but, you know, there are things that I think kind of point out these blind spots in the way that Hong Kong has been represented, um, in the way that we have kind of conceptualized it as like, um, you know, China, Taiwan, and Hong Kong, right, like that kind of, uh, you know, thing within area studies, right, particularly uh, Hong Kong has not really had um its own place again until very, very recently. And now, you know, we see it a lot more, which is great um, in certain ways. And then uh, I think worth interrogating in other ways. Right. But, um, you know, I, I also think, Ellie, that that point that, you know, this is still a, you know, that you're not claiming that this is like a a term without controversy or maybe even a term without problem. Right. But that that is, I think, part of of healthy debate, right? Not everyone's going to agree. Um, you know, I, I, and that there may be, you know, kind of conversations or contestations within like all different levels, I think is a really interesting, you know, and I think a good point to bring to this, right. It, it's again, like not, not necessarily, I guess, like common <laughs> for academia, right. To be like, yeah, some people may <laughs> disagree with me and that's fine. Right. But, and yet, right. Like that is part of a movement, right. Is, is to have disagreements, right. As long as you can talk about them. Right. Um, So yeah, I I think that's a really good point. Okay, where was I? Okay, um, oh you know, I have one, okay, I want I have one other question. I didn't put it down, but um I had one other question, kind of it's like half question, half observation. Just speaking of citation and speaking of community, I did notice in this introduction, and generally speaking, in this collection, I think this might be one of the uh, you know, a bibliography that has relatively few old white guys cited in this um, and uh, I was really into it. I mean I, I assumed that this was intentional, uh, having uh, you know seen you know and talked to, to you both about this project um, but I I noticed that um, you know, you have a really interesting right uh, bibli- the bibliography in and of itself is its own discourse. Um, and you draw from some really, interesting sources, Um, and I would say like, you know, within my own discipline, you know, um, JN, I know you're in a slightly different field, right? But um, within the area studies discipline, somewhat unusual, right? People, unfortunately, still to be citing, although I think that's getting a little better. Um, But uh, for listeners who haven't had a chance to pick up this book, um, it's a really, you know, it's a really interesting intellectual community and a really interesting intellectual lineage. Um, and I realize this is a very poorly articulated question, but if either of you have anything that you'd like to add on the subject of your references and your intellectual community as articulated within the introduction, um, I'm just sort of curious to hear more about that. Um, I guess like, uh, Jan, did you have anything you wanted to?
1: Yeah, this actually kind of connects to something you were just saying about, um, you know, reading reading some of the articles and being like, wow, I wish I was, I had like this is something that I've been thinking about a long time, and this person articulated it. And that's actually to tie this to an earlier question that that's like one of the selection criteria that I had was just like these are pieces that I had read that really kind of illuminated things for me, like about Hong Kong, about the movement, um, and that really kind of contributed to my own growth. So that was like those were some of the first pieces that I reached for, and that's kind of like how I think this uh, intellectual community that that we built through the citations kind of grew organically as well, right? Because, you know, I, I guess the, the project that we're engaged in is so, it's so like multifarious and and like, you know, it's it's editorial, it's organizing, it's translation, it's, it's so many different things. And so, and that's incredible, right? Like we're, we're able to engage with so many different people on different registers. Um, and so I think that's maybe why the bibliography might read like a or askew skew in, in good ways. Um, as if we're not specifically drawing in a disciplinary way from certain, um, you know, leading figures or or something like that. Right. Because, you know, there, there are people who are more adept at this kind of like historical archival work um, in the collective. And so they've been able to offer some more of the kind of like um, archival sources from like, uh, you know, Sun Mew and some, some of the like, um, leftist collectives from like the sixties and seventies um, that some of us weren't really aware of. So that's, I think that's why it's so eclectic is because we also have so many contributions, not, ju- not just the four of us.
2: That's a really, that's really interesting. That is like quite illuminating um, in the, in the process. Um, Ellie, did you have anything you wanted to add to that?
0: Yeah, sure. Just a little thing. I, I think that um, for both of us, I think um, I think, the bibliography, like the way it is, I, I think it's, it's just a clear reflection of our mode of engagement with our interlocutors and our collaborators. And, you know, like uh, Jane was saying, like a lot of them were doing their primary research into the histories of uh, movement, histories of collectives in Hong Kong and, and diaspora. And I think that um, for me, like I, I engaged heavily with translation and uh, for the text um, in translation and the original text or like some other scholarly kind of treatment of such text, like I, and for all of them to be situated alongside each other and as, um, you know, and as like equal sort of sources of knowledge production. I think for me, that's one of the central kind of motivations of why um, uh, almost all of this is to me a translational practice. And I think that it is, um it is you know like sometimes I think my job is just to like clarify or to facilitate I I I think that other people like smarter people and like more knowledgeable people like they have already done the work and I I sometimes think that though it's like the action is amplifying you know not not just like sort of uh going back to an earlier question you know it's not just like uh claiming authorship or claiming some sort of um you know propriety over any any certain like discourse or whatever and so for me like um even in in my training i guess like in the very short three years of when i've been in the department um you know like even like the old white man thing like it it, that's like that's a through line in all of my training right and it's literally like oh like you want to talk about decolonial theory like go like before bignolo like go to winter or something right like so it's always always a reflex for me like it's always like uh someone is talking about this that's not an old white man like just like do do that for everything right and so I <laughs> I don't know I think for me it's a little bit like knee-jerk at this point and and I, I'm I, I'm kind of glad that it was it kind of is sort of what you noticed about the volume two
2: yeah I um I mean and I guess for listeners again who haven't had a chance uh don't worry I, I'm pretty sure Foucault's still in there but um you know like there's just like a lot of other things. But yeah, I really, um, you know, I, I learned a lot, you know, from the text as I, I continue to say ad nauseum, right? But I also learned a lot from the footnotes and that was something I did I did kind of clock was, oh, that's interesting. I had never, you know, like, and so yeah, there's there's a lot going on both textually, um, you know, Elliot, I think that kind of comment about trans, translation, right? Or the kind of um, the politics of translation or amplification, right? That kind of thing. Um, you know it's really interesting. Um but yeah like that that's also there right the kind of resonance right between someone like Sylvia Winter right and this and this situation which is not to say that like you know she is commenting on this situation and yet there is like a resonance that you can kind of get you know can sort of get that kind of resonance that kind of goes between these two kind of issues. Okay. Um Again, I am so sorry I've asked so many questions. I just I really enjoyed this. Okay. Um, so I guess uh, you know, I'd like to ask a question kind of more broadly um, about the section, the first section of this collection, which is called Grounding the Movement. Um and so I I guess um, you know how did you decide what was going to go into this section? Why did you decide to put this section at the beginning? I think in many ways, this is a very foolish question because obviously grounding the movement sort of answers this question already, right? But you know how did you decide what was gonna go inside? Um, and I guess uh, if this is kind of too general a question, um, you know one of the other through lines that I noticed um, in this section, and this could perhaps be just my own Um, you know, delusional perception of this, but um, that there did seem in most of the articles in this section to be attempts to draw, um, to maybe complicate the idea that 2019 was a kind of unprecedented event, right? That there is a strong history, um, both within uh, institutions of governance and institutions of, of, you know, rule uh with a kind the previous colonial regime of of the british um as well as you know a lot of links uh within the movement itself right that there is an attempt to kind of make those connections um and so i was wondering if if either of you you know would be willing to speak to that um Ellie, did you have anything you you'd like to start with
0: mm, i i guess just Brief comments about um, why even ground the movement because uh, certainly like it's unprecedented in scale and operation perhaps uh, but uh, it's yeah I mean I I see it as um, because precisely it reacts to so many of the um, sort of perceived failures or the like shortcomings of prior attempts to articulate um, some pretty complex and um, I guess overdetermined terms as well. Uh, grounding it uh, is kind of necessary in order for us to then go to material life which gets into the sort of relative minutiae of how things are done and who is speaking and who ought to speak but haven't and then perhaps like later on zooming back out into um, kind of uh, uh, kind of I guess again a prospecting framework you know like looking at internationalism from below and it's um, Reference to an organization that we frequently uh, collaborate with as well, and it's it's something that I think um, on in the mat, like as a matter of like just scaling or like scoping our projects, like grounding is something that is um, necessary. Like number one, it's just like it's um, there are so many like contentious terms of uh, quote unquote political liberation that just have. I guess like congealed into these stubborn like uh, binarisms or just like have increasing attachments to, um, I would say like reactionary Type of things and i like nationalism and nativism and like for for us like grounding the movement perhaps like also entails like um teasing out the exact dynamics be- like between like these binarisms and like to you know like chop them up a little bit and like just like re-examine them in light of 2019 and secondly just like grounding the movement like for me it's um just like also like incidentally it's just significant like as an action that i have to do every day like grounding is something that um is always debated in the movement right like it's something that like people are always talking about like who is on the ground like who therefore has a right to participate and to speak and so lots of people have you know staked a claim and being able to delineate like this right to be on the ground or like um who is closer to the ground or therefore has like um like kind of a more moral political like right toward um, determining these um, ideas and so I think grounding the movement for for me like it's it's incredibly like incredibly arduous but like every single thing that um, we do without sort of like articulate why we're grounding and what we're grounding is like you know it's almost moot like I think like you know, the ground is, like, so, like, by the mainstream and by, like, sort of, um, more kind of belligerent, uh, right-wing people in Hong Kong, I think the ground is sort of seen as, uh, the only arena of action, and that's precisely, like, for me, at least personally, that's my contestation, like, the ground is not static, it's always shifting, and, like, uh, sometimes your ground is not my ground, like, and you, you know, so on and so forth. So I think that's sort of uh, my, my, my interest in why grounding in the first place.
2: Yeah, that's a really interesting, I mean, there's a lot there, right? But there's some really interesting things there, I think, particularly that final kind of comment about, you know, the ground, you know, as this kind of site of um, somewhat exclusionary, sometimes, you know, or it it can, you know, be used as such, right, Uh, kind of authority. That's really, I think, a really interesting point. Um, Jan, did you have anything you'd like to add to that?
1: Yeah, I think somewhat similarly. I think um, I felt that there was a need to ground it based on, you know, your observation, Clara, which was that this through line, we were trying to draw the timeline a little bit further back from, you know, because I think most of the narratives that came out, like the, the books, the first books about the movement that were like rushed to press, like at the end of, uh, 2019 or whatever were by journalists who basically tried to just kind of like represent the the majority opinions uh in very broad strokes. And typically, uh from what I can tell, the timelines were drawn back to like maybe like 2012 or something like that. You know, like around the time of when the student uh movement started. And so I think we were trying to ground it in a different way. So kind of like what Hlay was saying was like we're seeing this movement as springing from many different dynamics other than, uh, you know, what what these other uh, books have done so far. And I think the, the the kind of submerged critique that we have of that is that we don't see these, uh, the, the liberties to protest as uh, it's not indebted to the kind of like pseudo liberal democracy of the British colonial system, right? Because I think, that is, that is kind of the um, implicit argument of a lot of these uh, mainstream books is like, look at look what's being taken away as these kind of like pseudo liberties that Hong Kong used to have. And so we're, we're trying to kind of draw the timeline further back to say, well, that's, it's a lot more complicated than that. Um, and as you can see, you know, these, these liberties have always been kind of not there in jeopardy, you know, those different things. So I think that's what we were trying to do by ground. It could have been titled like regrounding the movement or something like that as well, yeah.
2: I think that's a really, you know, that's a really interesting point. And, you know, I think, jay your your comments kind of brought to mind, um, I taught a Hong Kong class for the first time this year, um, and I I wish I had had a chance to read this book before I I prepared all my lectures. But, you know, I I think that's something that comes up, right? Um, You know, not only just within, you know, people who are protesting in Hong Kong, but, you know, Hong Kongers, you know, in Canada as well, um, and I'm sure other places, right, this idea of, like, the British taught us the rule of law. Right. Um, And, uh, you know, um, again, I I look forward to teaching this class in a couple of years again, uh, you know, have fully armed with this book. But, you know, again, at the time I was like, I don't think that that's true, Um, but I, I don't know enough to really say. And now I, you know, I'm now armed with many other things, but. You know, and and then these other sort of, you know, kind of moments of dissonance, you know, in 2019, when you would hear like the Hong Kong police force referred to as Asia's finest. And, you know, that is something that gets, you know, kind of bandied about quite a bit. Um, and yet, you know, I, I think, again, my my experience with Hong Kong is very limited, but when I lived there, I think in like 2011 and um, 2012, I heard stories of, you know, nice middle-class, you know, uh, ethnically Han boys, you know, getting carded, you know, getting her, you know, and at, so at the time, you know, I was like, really? Is that true? <laughs> um, you know, and, and again, like, I, these are my own kind of very anecdotal kind of, you know, experiences, but, you know, and then to kind of see these things laid out, right, um, you know, and I think that other point that you made, right, about the kind of limited historicity, um, I've been, I've, I've been fortunate enough um, through like a, a Hong Kong um, group in in the city where I live um, to watch a number of of the Hong Kong documentaries that have been coming out about the protests. Um, and they're really, you know, many of them are, are really, you know, good. Um, I think a lot of them are very important. But I do think your, you know, your observation there, I think is quite astute, right, that they don't really push it further than like 2011. May. I mean, I mean, you get like the handover shot or whatever, but like, that's kind of it, right? Like, Um, and I think, you know, one of the things that I found like so valuable about this, you know, just personally from this section was, you know, the ability to kind of draw, um, a lot of, um, connections to, you know, this kind of, and, and to problematize, uh, the colonial state, um, you know, I found the, let's see who wrote this, let me just double check, um, the... Fung Chi-Kyung and uh, Li Chun-Wing's article on the kind of new union movement and the really kind of like complicated relationship that unions have had, um, you know, to protest movements and to, you know, the, the, you know, kind of communist era, like that's really valuable, right? Because it does show us something that is not really, I think, well defined, like it is not particularly like well positioned within a kind of binary, Um of like, oh, okay, some people are like pro-China and some people are like pro-Britain. Like that's not, you know, that that's much more complicated than that, right? So yeah, I think, you know, that's a, a really, I think a really thought-provoking um, comment there. So uh, let's see. You know, I I have already kept you like way too long and I have so many things I want to ask, but um, let's move on to to material life. I think Ellie, you already kind of started talking about this, right? This is a, a much more kind of granular section, right? This is a section that looks much more at, um, you know, how protest tactics um, within the movement have operated. Um, And, you know, one of the things that I, I again, found, like, quite interesting and, like, quite valuable is that, um, you know, for listeners, this, this section really looks at a number of different wings of the movement. Um, Certainly, some of the more prominent wings of the movement are well represented here. Um, But we also take a look at, um, you know, uh, how some more, um, perhaps, uh, less well publicized communities, such as sex workers in Hong Kong, migrant domestic workers, um, you know, kind of were impacted by and interacted with um, the 2019 protests, um, as well as the ways in which, you know, other kind of social and cultural organizations, um, such as RTHK, um, which is a television station in Hong Kong, um, and Christian churches in Hong Kong, you know, how these uh, kind of organizations also reacted to this. And so, um, you know, I think this was a really diverse, you know, really interesting, you know, kind of like very, like wide ranging section in many ways. Um, But I, I'm sure you couldn't cover everything. Right. So, you know, how did you decide what to cover? Um, You know, were there specific kind of voices that you were looking for? Um, You know, did you kind of start out with some things that you wanted to make sure that you did cover or did some of these things kind of happen organically? Um, You know, how how did this how did this work? Um, And I think, JN, let's start with you.
1: Yeah, I mean, I think that the nature of the edited collection is can be very frustrating in the sense that you can't include everything, right? And we did want to include everything, uh, and we just couldn't. And so, you know, one of the things that you know we, we mentioned at the end of the introduction is we really just wanted more on uh, mainland Chinese struggle, cross-border solidarities, um, all those different things, and you know, just just by kind of the nature of uh, logistically, trying to organize so many different pieces, we weren't able to include some of the pieces on that 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 some of our colleagues and comrades had written, um, and so I, you know, that, that that's one kind of um, missing piece that I really wish was there um, from the material, because I think it's such an uh, important element of of what we're trying to do in that section, which was, like Ellie said, the kind of like granular granular look at what life is like um during the struggle, before the struggle after the struggle, um, and stuff like that. but you know I, I'm really glad that we have the pieces on the sex workers and migrant domestic workers uh, especially as as like historical and political agents in and of themselves rather than as kind of um, you know sociological subjects through through which we can kind of like, you know pity or or uh, favor with our charity or those types of things. so, Um, yeah, that's, that's kind of how I see this section as it stands.
2: Yeah. I, I did notice that actually I, you know, that's something that, you know, just from a purely practical perspective, I, you know, try to find things that I can include to talk about this in a Hong Kong class. And it's really hard, uh, frankly, also in the Taiwan class, uh, to find anything about migrant workers that doesn't seem at best somewhat paternalistic, and at worst, like, extremely racist, and so, you know, and, you know, I think, um, Jay, and that point about pity, right, this idea of, like, oh, you know, it's it's so sad that they, you know, like, oh, it's so sad that they, they have to do this, you know, like, that kind of thing, right, um, is very, ab- the, you know, refreshingly absent. You get a lot of different perspectives from people who are, you know, doing, you know, living their lives, making choices, having to make choices that they might not otherwise have made, and yet it is not, like, you know, let us look at this, you know, like let us look at these poor people kind of thing. So I, you know, I did appreciate that there was a fairly substantial amount, um, you know, devoted to that. Um, And I I did, you know, I did really appreciate that aspect of it. I I did find it quite refreshing actually. Um, Ellie, did you have anything you wanted to add?
0: Yeah, sure. I think um, just a small comment about uh, something in the introduction, too, is that um, I think we were out to also uh, kind of complicate what civil society uh, is being, like, what kind of civil society tends to be um, kind of supported or kind of extended in the popular imagination. And I think that for for us, like, a lot of our projects, like, involves just, um, you know, like, looking at sanitize or, like, looking at just, like, a, a glossier version of civil society and what it means to um, have that as like a like people think about civil society as something that's like inherently like uh, anti-hegemonic, and I think that's not true, uh, to say the least. Because you know, like with Hong Kong, like the colonial racial fabric of just like Han supremacy, you know, and and the kind of middle class bourgeois elite, like I think that that certainly informs the formation of civil society, and I think it is and uh, mostly. Um, it's mostly just false, right? Like in 2019, all of these things like uh, coming to the surface is that sex workers are already calling for like the abolition of police, and then housewives in Hong Kong are already calling for, you know, wages, like in the tradition of so like uh, Federici and et cetera, et cetera. And like people are already like, you know, the first person accounts are already like proliferating. And I think that for for us, like material life is not so much like employing the sort of kind of like journalistic gloss or like the anthropological gaze in terms of like. Uh, or cropping out, you know, certain kind of like vulnerables in like in the surface of this like, uh, you know, whatever charitable uh, narrative that people would like to like kind of like deploy when convenient. But rather, you know, like civil society itself, like we want to like narrate it in a in a way that's more actually more truthful. Um, and uh, and you know, like it's I I think that what I would have liked to include, like for myself, like I I certainly had an interest in cleaning workers um, in the movement like for example so i mean there are like chan said like there are just so many so many so many people who we wish we could include and the interesting thing is i think they're all connected to each other right because um like for example you know cleaning workers in hong kong uh, a lot of them happen to be south asian migrants uh, a lot of them happen to be low-income mainland chinese uh new immigrants to hong kong and uh, you know i, I think that there are so many uh, overlapping and kind of intertwining uh, like uh, roles that these people uh, kind of uh, latch onto like in in this like sort of like broad view of civil society that like um, I would be hopeful that even if we don't get to include all of them like at the very least like um, there is an inkling and there is some level of um, yeah, there is some level of legibility that is not paternalistic, like you were saying, nor sort of, you know, just, uh, I guess, like, incomplete, I I hope.
2: It's really, I think, another really good point, you know, and I I had not really thought about cleaning workers, right, but I think, Ellie, that's, like, a really good, you know, it's a really good point, and I, I think, again, this kind of, like, intersectionality, it's not one or the other, right, um, mm-hmm. though many of these things are kind of quite connected. Yeah, I think that's a really, a really interesting point that I would like to, one day make you, make you talk to me more about. Um, Okay, let's move on to the final section. Um, And I, you know, I found this section, I I don't know, I like them all. Um, I I know I sound kind of very wishy-washy, but, but I, you know, I think this section is quite interesting um, and quite innovative um, because this section, which is titled Internationalism from Below, um, you know, puts the Hong Kong movement in conversation with a number of other movements around the world. Um, some of those being decolonial and some of those being, I think other types of, of movements, right? Um, so, you know, just a, a few of these, right, is, um, you know, including, um, you know, the Hong Kong movement's relationship to Taiwan, which I think has has perhaps been more talked about in certain ways, but I, I did think that the, the article there was was quite interesting. Um, you know, Filipina, um, Filipino and Filipina and Indonesian migrant workers, um, Jeju Island and Okinawan anti base movements, right? All of these are kind of connections that are being made. Um, and so, you know, uh, returning to the introduction, um, you know, one of the things that you kind of talk about are the importance of building minor to minor connections. Um, and I, I this is, uh, I think coming at least in part from, um, you know, Shumei and, and Francoise Lyonnais kind of minor transnationalism, right? And this, you know, this is a, a concept that I you know, I mean, I I find quite compelling, you know, myself, Um, but, uh, you know, I'm I'm just sort of curious, you know, what, what was important to you, um, you know, in a, in a book um, that you, you have both already admitted, uh, you couldn't fit everything in, right? Um, You know, what was the, what was the importance of devoting some of this book to, to connections beyond Hong Kong, I guess? Um, So, uh, Ellie, would you like to start us off?
0: Yeah, sure. So I think that for me, like, and I'll speak for myself, of course, like, it happens on two levels. And it's firstly, like, just my, like, little salty self, like, major to major simply doesn't hold up, right, like, under scrutiny. And I think that, you know, minor to minor is necessary, like, on even the most banal level of, like, like, practicable, like, feasible, like, solidarity building because we're seeing um, even, like, I mean, 2019 is not the start of it, but, like, certainly, like, the most kind of symptomatic moment is, like, the rise of the Hong Kong, like, Trumpist contingent. I think, like, that, for me, is when people are trying to do major to major and it, like, it's, it's, it's bringing backlash and it doesn't bring results. Like, whatever those results may mean to sort of the kind of liberal to far right kind of like uh, spectrums in Hong Kong and I I think like it's you know like the state level lobbying and the sort of like uh, attempt to portray Hong Kong people like in exile as like model migrants and like sort of the ensuing like attempt to um, you know uh, I guess take advantage of that type of portrayal is I think um, you know it's at odds with who actually makes up the movement and Um, and the majority of, you know, like who has already been paying attention to these questions, like just beyond even like the, like de facto, like start and end of like the uprising or whatever. And I think that, you know, like it's really like uh, my, my first, my, my first thing about Minor to Minor is that like, it's because it's simply the better way to go. And like, that's really simple. Like, that's just, you know, like uh, I, I think many, many people would disagree and for me, like I've spent like over three years talking about why like minor to minor is not just that you know a self-gratifying uh, vanity type of like uh, uh, off the ground project, but in fact something that is worth uh, sort of building up and something that's worth training people in doing. And so um, it's frustrating, of course like and and you know like many, many people would find it like controversial that like, Say, you know, there's an entire like lobbying body in in D.C. right now, like focused on Hong Kongers, you know, and the people they lobby, you know, it's I mean, it's immediately clear um, what type of kind of dominant relations of power are being identified as useful and as sort of um, yeah, expedient, you know, for the immediate future that we're facing. And of course, I understand, like, of course, because like, I I mean, I was born and raised here. I, I like I I have a passport or whatever, you know, like, of course, I understand the urgency of finding immediate solutions. But um, that's not to say like major to major is the way to go. And for me, like, secondly, you know, I Um, And this has more to do with like what I learned from primarily Jan's work uh, in the midst of just like working with him. I think that like this section also just is something that's much needed in all the discourse around coloniality um, in Hong Kong, uh, primarily because I think a lot of it is focused on British colonialism and not so much on the kind of over like oversized kind of influence of US imperialism, right? And so the sort of uh, minor to minor connections that we're making in specifically, I guess, Taiwan and the Philippines and also um, Jeju Island, I think like we are specifically trying to like forward the idea that US empire is something that's also pernicious and something that deserves as much scrutiny uh, in anywhere else uh, like you know like puerto rico or, or guam or whatever like you know in hong kong you know we we need to look at us as um something that uh perhaps is uh you know like in need of uh like complete like just like removal and i i think that um for me too, like minor to minor i guess like it, on, on a sort of like state level like that's certainly important but um, again, like, my, like, that's why I'm saying, you know, like internationalism from below, like a lot of these people that we're talking about in material life, the previous section, like they're coming from these places where we're doing minor to minor, uh, like relations, right? And so I think um, this operates on both the sort of granular level and also on the more kind of overarching, um, yeah, I guess, like whatever state level, uh, like narratives that we are trying to correct and to like
2: supplement really, I think a really interesting point. Um, Jan, did you have anything you wanted to add to that?
1: Yeah, um, I mean, I agree with everything Ali said. I think the, I think it, uh, the section really kind of springs from a lot of the, the conversations we've had, you know, in private working out our, our political views, not just about the Hong Kong movement, but even, you know, for example, you know, in, in academia, I think you know, I'm in American studies and ethnic studies and, um, you know, Hong Kong doesn't really register as a thing in those fields. Uh, most people kind of like know where it is or something, but when I, when I bring up my work or I talk about the the kind of like what's happening in Hong Kong, there, there's a kind of general, um, general, general ignorance about it and, and China in general as well. So I think, um, Thinking about internationalism from below, and I, I don't think that's that's the specific fault of, of anyone in particular. It's more just how these fields have formed. Um, but I think this section is an attempt to address these separations amongst fields and even political movements, right? So, like for those people who see U.S. empire as the only force uh, that needs to be fought, uh, uh, you know, on the global stage, is the only global hegemon. Uh, then obviously Hong Kong doesn't matter at all. Right. And then for those who see China as the only kind of enemy to be fought, then the U S empire doesn't matter at all. And obviously, you know, our, one of the core ethos of this book, and then also our collective work is that, you know, capital is global uh, China and the U S are just kind of inseparably enmeshed in the global market at this point. And so it's, it's, it. Uh, seeking these immediate solutions, you know, what, what Ellie was talking about, uh, I think it, it can accomplish things in the, in the short term, medium term, but um, it doesn't address these kind of root issues of um, how empires collaborate and, and feed off each other. Right. Um, and so, you know, once and, you know, it, it's also kind of driven by this belief that like once you strip away all the kind of nationalist rhetoric of like cultural, ethnic and racial difference we all really kind of have a lot more in common under this sounds like a platitude but we actually do have a lot more in common under the experience of like capitalist exploitation than we have differences right and so it's really you know this section is really trying to drive towards that like tr- trying to bring that observation to its logical conclusion right because normally you would never think about comparing like Hong Kong with Jeju Island or with Puerto Rico, which that was not included in this book, but that's, that's kind of an event that we had held uh, early on in 2019, uh, with, with Puerto Rican scholars and activists, um, is just like this kind of common experience of like dispossession, um, under like continuing regimes of coloniality and also global capital. Right. Um, and so, yeah, I think, I think that's what we're trying to get at here. And it, sometimes it gets a little unwieldy. Sometimes the connections may seem a little bit more distant, uh, but it, it's all about kind of like drawing the connections to see what can happen.
2: Yeah, I think that's, you know, you've both made some, I think, really powerful points. I do remember that Puerto Rico event, you know, many, many years ago and thought, you know, yeah, like why aren't more people doing that? And yet, right, like that's not, a, you know, that's not a connection that, I think is commonly made if if Hong Kong's compared to very many places, right? It's either to Taiwan or maybe like Singapore, right? Like it's something where it like fits, but you know, but and yet, right, I think, you know, the Laosan collective and 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 you guys have have made like a really, I think, good case for, you know, thinking a bit more outside the box um, to some of these these places. And, you know, I, you know, in part, I, I think I find this kind of compelling. You know, I have uh, family and we are like Asian settler colonists in in Hawaii, um, you know, and that's like another place where it's like, yeah, it's part of the U.S., but it's also not, <laughs> um, you know, like, it's not that difficult, I think, to, to kind of understand that. Um, and yet, right, it, it's somehow very hard to understand. Your comments, I think, about, you know, U.S. and, and China, you know, and, and the the kind of, you know, way in which these can be this can be seen as a sort of like manichaean struggle right or it can be seen as, as something like that is an excellent segue into the question that i have about um, the piece that you contributed to this to this volume right which is called um, the hong kong card um and so you know in this this uh this essay you know which i found to be quite you know thought provoking um you know you, you problematize uh what a, a phrase that has has really kind of gotten a lot of uh, has has really start, started to like, kind of slip off the tongue and nobody really seems to actually unpack what this means. Um, and so, you know, your essay here does, I think, a really good job in making us think about something that we don't think very much about, but probably should, uh, which is the phrase, the new Cold War, right? And, you know, kind of thinking about, um, you know, what this phrase does you know, how it's being articulated both by American and Chinese politicians. Um, And so I guess I'd I'd like to ask you one question. I could ask you a ton of questions, um, but I'll just ask the one. Um, So, you know, in the essay, you kind of critique, right? This idea that in fact, what is happening today is a new cold war, right? And so what are some of the possibilities that emerge for us if we don't see the current situation as a new cold war. Right. Um, you know, would, would you mind speaking to that?
1: Yeah, sure. So I think, um, you know, this chapter was an expansion of a kernel of writing that Ellie and I had done a long time ago. So Ellie, please feel free to jump in as well, because I'm sure you have just as many observations about this. Um, and it's also very indebted to the collective conversations that we've had at Lausanne. So, know i'm not i'm not claiming this is my argument about the new cold war but i do think you know it's really important to point out that um what's happening right now is that you know different states are are kind of like grabbing on to this term in order to like import binaries from uh the old cold war the actual cold war uh into the present of like you know capitalism versus communism uh liberal democracy versus authoritarianism those different things and you know there's obviously kernels of truth on uh on either of those kind of binaries but it's it doesn't accurately describe the material reality that we live in under anymore right like i said in a previous question the us and china are allies that have been meshed now in terms of their collaboration uh under capital right so it doesn't make any sense to try and import this old framework where the antagonisms were, were real, um, and the rev- you know, th- there was still kind of a revolutionary uh, movement at that, in that moment. And so there has to be a reason why it is useful in this, in this moment, right? And it's not just useful for uh, you know, governments and elites, but it's also very useful for protesters and, and people who consider themselves radicals, right? Either on the radical left or radical right. So many people find use in, the, in this term new Cold War, and it's just it just is kind of like empty, like cipher or container for whatever a certain person's like prejudice is or what their political beliefs are. And so um, I think it's, it's really important to unpack that, um, because if we don't, then we kind of really risk allowing uh, states to really narrow our because once you start talking uh, in the discourse of war and crisis, then you're you're options become so limited, right? You either have to, you're with us or against us, right? And and it's a very kind of old trick, obviously, uh, in the US. Uh, So it's really kind of surprising to me that a lot of people are falling for it again, having just, you know, uh, gone through it for for 20 odd years. Um, And, you know, it, this is an attempt to, to kind of unpack the the falsity of what this new Cold War discourse is, is to really try and break free from those limited options and to say, actually, we don't have to invest all of our political and psychic energy into the U.S. or into China. Uh, There are other options.
2: Um, Ellie, did you have something you wanted to add to?
0: Oh, I mean, maybe just an example. I mean, I I, I think that Uh, what comes to mind in in Hong Kong, at least when people are trying to drum up sort of um, more heat for the new Cold War discourse is when um, they talk about sort of mutually assured destruction, which is Mm -hmm. like, you Mm -hmm. know, like, I, I think they're trying to amp up the antagonism between China and US and, and they are, you know, like they're looking at Hong Kong as like this like um, strategic uh, point of destruction, wherein um, if if like Hong Kong is like jettisoned and like is no more, then like China doesn't get to depend on Hong Kong's like sort of financial like sort of liquidity or whatever, um, and the financial institutions that like they have long relied on, um, and and then like the whole thing goes up in smoke. And so I think that for for me like um, that's certainly what resonates uh, with me about this piece on the uh, quote-unquote why the new Cold War um, is a dangerous notion. Like, you know, it's leading to like literally solid swaths of people on the ground, like employing it for dubious ends that, you know, don't really secure, um, like, I think like feasible options of survival for um, anyone who's not like a mobile middle-class person. So I think that you know like uh, even even yeah so like even beyond like kind of anglophone radical like left right circles, I think in Hong Kong, this has you know material ramifications for um anyone who's like falsely or mislead, like mis like misleadingly advocating for something that resembles like the other cold war, so yeah
2: it's a really I think an interesting point um you know i I could ask a lot more questions um But, you know, I've taken up a lot of your time. So I I think I'm going to close with the final question. Um, You know, we, we have talked you know, we've covered the book, I think, um, fairly extensively, but is is there anything that um, we haven't had a chance to get to that you would like to bring up?
0: Mm, for me not really like i i think that like i mean again like i i wish like maybe maybe this volume could have like you know part two part three you know whatever and we could just keep kind of updating and checking in on on this conversation again and again and for me a part of this is like my my personal ongoing kind of uh visual studies dimension of the movement and i like this stems from like something early very very early on like as early as like probably like 2015 when I was still an undergrad, I, I was doing a lot of work about um, kind of the like, I guess like the like latent liberalisms and like hegemonies and visual culture when it's like transmitted as diasporic uh, art. And so I was looking at, you know, like the prior Hong Kong movements and how like sort of images of um, commodity and capital become sort of synonymous with This, like, uh, I don't know, this sort of like overarching identity of Hong Konger as inherently sort of anti hegemonic. And I I think I have an investment in that because, like, there are a lot of um, sort of highly kind of like um, articulated image worlds in. Um, And even 2019, like everyone keeps saying, be water, be water, be water. But like, Mm -hmm. what does that mean beyond like the Bruce Lee reference and be water being, you know, the sort of um, much uh, celebrated, like new tactic of decentralized action and anonymous action. And I think that, um, you know, there's a visual dimension to it. And uh, I think it holds a lot of clues as to why um, sometimes the movement uh, fails some of its most like, intuitive like proponents right and i think like um for me you know like i i i could go on and on about this and uh i think that you know some of the work already in the volume like uh about the right to the public uh the right to the public space in hong kong and sort of the um the article by michael lung about uh land movements in hong kong i think those already sort of um have like show like kind of you know like there's a propensity for uh visual and spatial studies in the movements uh kind of realm and I think that like you know if I were to have more space and time I would probably work a little bit more on that
2: Mm. really and you know I'd love a volume too selfishly but you know as, as you both said right it's a lot of work um Jan did you have anything that you that we didn't get a chance to talk about
1: no I feel like we covered it all
2: all right, sounds good. Okay, final question, and then I'll let you both go. Thank you so much for sticking with me for so long. Um, and what are you working on right now? Now that uh, you've spent three years working on this book, the, obviously the next thing is more production. So, you know, what are you working on right
1: <laughs> Yeah, I mean, you know, Ellie and I actually had talked toyed around with starting a new book proposal. So that, that's one thing uh, that that's going to take on a different flavor from this one. But that's one thing that's kind of on the back burner, kind of we're letting it simmer in the back of our minds. But I guess currently I'm working on a, a book chapter or sorry, a dissertation chapter. Uh, and it's set in Vancouver. I'm looking at the I'm revisiting this kind of episode of, of the monster, so-called monster houses, like the McMansions, uh, that were really kind of like this firestorm issue in the eighties and nineties with like Hong Kong and Taiwanese immigrants, and now with mainland Chinese immigrants. Um, and really trying to think through this, uh, not as just this kind of like sole issue of racial discrimination and cultural difference, but as like exemplifying uh, this kind of reorientation of, of global racial capital um, after U.S.-China rapprochement in the in the late seventies, and how these houses actually kind of exemplify like a logistics regime of like increased circulation of capital, commodities, and people. Um, so yeah, that's kind of what I'm working on now.
2: Sounds really interesting, um, Ellie. What about you? Um, yeah, I
0: I think I have a lot to work on, but primarily my own uh, health and kind of you know family dynamics after kind of burning out and flaming out all over the place so I you know I'll be real about that like before any work can continue like I kind of have to fix some like uh myself things first right and then so um I do have a reading recommendation because I know that JN will never bring it up by himself and uh it's uh an article in Amerasia uh Hmm. the Cold War issue Mm. Uh, it's called uh, ubiquity made visible non-sovereign visuality plastic flowers and labor in cold war hong kong Mm. and so um yeah well (laughs) not to put you on the spot but you know like i'm just telling people to go read it whenever i can so
2: yeah that sounds good uh you know i think it's important to kind of recognize that um you know health is important right uh we're not really encouraged to say that but you know um Work is is important, but health is more important, particularly in times like these. So, um, you know, thank you so much. I, I really enjoyed this conversation. You know, I, I I've learned a lot. So, you know, thank you so much.
0: Thank you, Clara.